Let's continue to worship by turning in our Bibles to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, I'm going to begin reading in verse 27 and read through to the end of the chapter. So again, that's John's gospel account, chapter 14. Beginning to read in verse 27, the words of the Lord Jesus, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Pause for a moment. What does he mean by that? The Father is greater than I. That phrase begins with the word for or because, meaning what? That it is tied to or related to the phrase that immediately precedes it. I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Therefore, when the Lord Jesus says that the Father is greater than I, He is not speaking about what He, the Son of God, or God the Father, or God the Spirit are essentially as God. He is speaking the language of His incarnation. Speaking the language of His humiliation. Insofar as His humiliation goes, His sojourn on earth, positionally speaking, the Father is greater than Him. There is no hint of Arianism here. Arius. Poor soul. Third century of the church. Believed and taught that the Lord Jesus was the first thing created. The greatest being, God's first created moment through whom everything was subsequently created. He latched onto this verse and other verses to teach that that heresy. But there's nothing of it here. There's not even a hint of it nor a whiff of it. We need to understand that the Lord Jesus is here speaking the language of his incarnation, of his humiliation. And outright reject the error of Arianism or what Arianism is known as today, the Jehovah's Witnesses. I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Verse 29. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Pause again for a moment. What does he mean by that? He has no claim on me. He's simply saying that in a few moments, Satan is going to levy his final assault against the Lord Jesus. He's going to assail him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He will assail him at Calvary's cross. He will throw his final temptation, everything he can, Christ's way. And yet Christ affirms Satan has no claim on me. I stand before you as the first man that Satan is unable to overthrow. The first man that Satan is unable to rule. Why? Verse 31. But I do 
as the Father has commanded me. Complete submission to the Father's will. So that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. This morning we're going to focus on one single verse. It was the first one, verse 27. A precious verse, a dear verse. Let me read it again for you where the Lord Jesus states to his disciples, to us, it echoes throughout the centuries, the history of the church. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. The starting point this morning has to be the word peace. Uh, What is the Lord Jesus talking about? What is the peace that he is speaking of here in this statement in this verse? When we find the word peace in Scripture, there may be one of two things in view. At times in Scripture, we read of peace with God. For example, a well-known verse in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's the first kind of peace. It is a peace that is rooted in justification. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. What does it mean to be justified? It simply means when God justifies me, He forgives me my sin. All of those sins that I have committed and will commit, He forgives. He wipes the slate clean. Why? Because He has counted that sin to His Son, the Lord Jesus who has borne the judgment, the punishment that I deserved. He has borne it at Calvary's cross. And because he has taken that penalty upon himself, because he has taken that judgment upon himself, because he has become the object of God's wrath and satisfied God's justice, God can forgive me my sins. But there's more to it than that. Not only does God forgive me my sins when he justifies me, But he takes the perfect righteousness and obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ and reckons it to me. And he declares me to be just. He declares me to be righteous in his sight. What's the result? What's the result of having my sins forgiven? The Lord Jesus having paid the penalty in full. What's the result of me now standing clothed in an alien righteousness? The righteousness, the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the result? It is peace with God. You see, I was at war with God, whether I realized it or not. That was my state. That was my condition. I was a rebel by virtue of my sin. I was rebelling against God, waging a war, a battle, a campaign against God. There was enmity, hatred between us. But he has forgiven me my sins because Christ has paid the penalty for them. And he has clothed me with Christ's righteousness. He has declared me to be just in his sight. And therefore, I now enjoy peace with God. But you see, as we read Scripture, we not only read about peace with God, we read about the peace of God. It's different. 
Let me read one single verse for you. No need to turn there in your Bibles. It's found in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 7. And here Paul writes the following. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so here we notice that the phrase is no longer peace with God. Here Paul is no longer talking about salvation or justification and the result of that salvific act. Here Paul is speaking about something different. He's referring to the peace of God. What does he mean by it? Well, I've included in the sermon outline in your bulletin a wonderful definition by A.T. Pearson. He writes, the peace of God is that eternal calm which lies far too deep in the praying, trusting soul to be reached by any external disturbances. And so we can think this morning of the cyclone, of the tornado. Apparently, I've never been inside a tornado, but apparently, inside a tornado is actually perfect calm, a perfect stillness. And around the center of that cyclone, around the center of that tornado, revolves all of the dust, all of the dirt, all of the debris, all of the farm animals or anything else it picks up in its wake. There it moves around the circle, the center. And yet in that center, there is perfect calm. Or you think of the hurricane developing over the Atlantic Ocean slamming against the eastern seaboard or coming right across Florida through the Gulf of Mexico up to the south of Texas. You think of that hurricane and the havoc that it leaves in its wake. And you think of that hurricane as it develops over the ocean and how it tossed those waves to and fro. But you go down but a few meters into the ocean depths. And what do you find? Perfect calm. Perfect stillness undisturbed by those winds hovering above. That is the peace of God. That in the midst of everything that is going on around us, as we are assailed by circumstances and situations one upon another, and as grievous things happen, and as things are coming at us from all sides, from all directions, even in the midst of the frenzy, and even in the midst of the turmoil, There is perfect calm. There is perfect rest. And there remains a soul undisturbed, unassailed. As again, as A.T. Pearson writes, the peace of God is that eternal calm which lies far too deep in the praying, trusting soul to be reached by any external circumstances or disturbances. That is what we're going to speak about this morning. That is what the Lord Jesus has in view in John 14, verse 27, when he says, Peace, peace, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be 
afraid. The verse naturally breaks into three sections. And in each of these sections, we learn something about this marvelous peace. First of all, we learn something about the origin of peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. In other words, this peace belongs to the Lord Jesus. This peace is something that is His by right. It is something that He alone has purchased by His blood. And it is something that He alone dispenses, gives, bestows upon His people. He has already sent us down that road. He's already given us an inkling of this truth earlier in the chapter where He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Believe in God. Believe also in me. We are to believe in God. Here's the source of true peace. Here's the source of this inner calm when our faith, when our spiritual eyes, our spiritual understanding is fixed on God alone. Two essential truths. The first is this, that God sees us. Oh, how we have to understand that. How we have to grasp this truth and remind ourselves of it daily that God sees us, sees everything and knows everything. Go back to Genesis chapter 16. And there in Genesis 16, Hagar flees from Sarah because Sarah is, is simply abusing her. Hagar finds herself in the wilderness all by herself, distraught, thinking this is the end. She's going to die. God appears to her. God speaks to her from heaven above. He promises her that he's going to give her a son, Ishmael. And then Hagar, in response, says, you are a God who sees Elroy. A God who sees, a God who sees all things, sees all that we do, sees all of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. There is nothing, absolutely nothing that escapes God's notice. And how we must reassure ourselves with that glorious truth. That our God is an all-seeing God. That our God is an all-knowing God. But secondly, we must remind ourselves of another truth. Big deal if he's all-seeing. Big deal if he's all-knowing. If he isn't all-powerful. And as we move on in the book of Genesis, we come to chapter 17. And there in Genesis 17, God promises Abraham that he, at 90 years of age, he is going to have a son through his wife, an old woman. They are going to have a physical son Abraham, it's all too much to absorb, too much to understand. And yet God prefaces the promise with a great declaration. I am God Almighty. El Shaddai, God Almighty. And as we read on in the narrative later in time, three messengers visit Abraham and Sarah. And they tell Abraham and Sarah that at this time next year, God is going to give them a son. Sarah finds it all too amusing and she breaks out in laughter. This is too crazy to even believe. And one of the messengers stares her in the face and asks her, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? And the answer is a resounding no. 
The Lord Jesus exhorts us, believe in God. Believe that he is an all-seeing, all-knowing, all-wise God. And believe that he is God Almighty, all-powerful, who works wonders among men, who declares the end from the beginning and accomplishes all his plans and purposes for us. That is what Christ draws us to. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. But here's another object of your faith. Believe also in me. Because here's the reality of the situation. You may believe God is all-knowing. You may understand that God is all-powerful. But if that God is not your God, big deal. And the only way that God can be your God is, yes, if you believe in him and believe also in me. Because there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And yes, he is he is a wonderful God. He is a glorious God who has numbered the hairs upon our heads, who has numbered our days, who has foreordained all that comes our way in life. And yet the only way to know this God, the only way to glean any comfort from a knowledge of this God, the only way to have any hope, the only way to have any peace is to draw near to this God through the one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. My peace I give to you. His peace by right as mediator, to bestow upon his people. Let me ask you this morning, Christian, do you enjoy this peace? Do you understand this peace? Do you grasp this inner calm of soul that is rooted in an unshakable faith in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ? S. Lewis Johnson used to be a preacher up the road in a place called Dallas. Maybe you've heard of it. He gives the following illustration. He was reading in a newspaper one day and, uh, and, and was struck by, the, by what he had read, the death of this, this old man. And as his friends and family gathered around to go through his belongings, uh, apparently he had been a, a, a real uh, collector of garbage and trash, and they went through his his property and his house, and actually ended up sending 80 truckloads of trash to the local dump. I sure hope those were pickup trucks. But 80 truckloads of trash and garbage and useless stuff to the dump. And then they began to go through the house. And, and this man seemed to be poverty-stricken, just a, a collector of garbage. And yet as they went through the house, they found nearly $50,000 worth of investments and stocks and bonds. And they continue to search. And they found these old tobacco cans full of nickels and dimes, which added up to over $1,000. And they continued to search. Under the front porch, they found these plastic tubes stuffed with $10 and $20 bills, adding up to more than $25,000. And all told, the man had close to, I think it was $80,000 hidden in his house. And then they proceeded to the attic 
And they found 30 sealed containers. They opened these containers and found brand new shoes. And found all these spanking new clothes that he had bought decades ago. And yet he, he went about in rags. And S. Lewis Johnson, as he reflects on this news article, he, he says the following. There's a man who had a lot. But didn't have a clue how to use it. Oh, we have a lot. And I'm afraid that spiritually speaking, we're very much like this man. Do you enjoy the peace of God, Christian? Do you take to heart daily this exhortation, let me use a stronger word, this command from the lips of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. That is the origin. That is the source of this peace. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. Thomas Manton writes, No pain so great, but God can mitigate or remove it. No danger so dreadful or so likely, but God can prevent it. No misery so deep, but God can deliver us from it. No enemy so strong, but God can vanquish them. And no want so great that God cannot supply. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Notice secondly, there's another statement in verse 27. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And here we learn something about the uniqueness of this peace, the peace of God. Not as the world gives do I give to you. How? How does the world give peace? What does the world give in terms of, in terms of peace, quiet, and calmness of soul in the midst of tribulation? Uh, not much. Now, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, centuries ago, he uh, grew up in a Christian home. His father, if I remember correctly, was a Lutheran pastor. And his paternal grandfather and maternal grandfather were both Lutheran pastors as well. He had, he had a Christian influence from the moment of his birth. He grew up, he rejected it. He began to dabble in philosophy and Friedrich Nietzsche is, is famous, is known for what is called the death of God philosophy. And in coining that phrase and in developing this philosophy, Nietzsche, he wasn't, he wasn't suggesting for one moment that God existed and then we killed him. No, what was, he was simply acknowledging was that insofar as the individual goes, insofar as society goes, we now live, we now exist as if there were no God. For all intents and purposes, God, if he exists, has been relegated, marginalized to the sidelines, made of no relevance, no consequence whatsoever. And Nietzsche began to probe the implications of this dreadful philosophy. He ended up penning a book called The Madman. In it we write, a madman appeared in the marketplace one morning holding a lighted lantern in the bright daylight. 
He startled everyone by crying, I'm looking for God, I'm looking for God. The people made fun of him, saying, do you think God is lost? Is he hiding? The madman leaped among the people, his eyes wild with alarm, crying, where is God? I'll tell you where he is. We have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. We have cut ourselves off from God. As though we had unchained the earth from the sun. And we are wobbling out of control. Plunging backward, sideward, forward. In all directions. We're becoming cold. And dark. And empty. Do you feel it? And Nietzsche began to probe even further the implications of this philosophy. And it turns out his book was self-fulfilling, for Nietzsche literally went insane. And walking the street one day, he collapsed. And they took him to the mental asylum, where he languished for 12 years until his death, nursed all the while by his Christian mother. And Nietzsche has become one of the most influential philosophers in Western thinking and thought today. Friend, friend, doesn't matter who you are. You remove God and Christ from the equation. If you remove God and Christ from the realm of reality, if you are a thinking person, There is nothing left but despair. There is no meaning in this life. This life is an absolute absurdity. There is not one iota of truth. There is no good. There is no evil. There is nothing of value. There is no comfort. And by God Almighty, there is no peace. So Bertrand Russell could write, We stand on the shore of an ocean. Crying to the night and the emptiness. Sometimes a voice answers out of the darkness. But it is the voice of one drowning. And in a moment, the silence returns. What does this world have to offer when it comes to peace? It offers self-help books. Chicken soup for the soul. Half a billion dollar a year industry. It offers CDs with the sounds of forests, birds, oceans, and rainfall. It offers yoga, eastern exercises, transcendental meditation. It offers vibrating chairs, massage machines, special lights, scented candles, pseudo-aquariums. It offers an assortment of balls, beads, and body rollers. If it weren't so depressing, it would be comical how this world seeks peace, seeks to quiet an immortal soul with what can only be described as absolutely trivial and of no relevance or consequence whatsoever. Not as the world gives do I give to you. If you're not a Christian, Let me ask you, do you have a clue what I'm talking about this morning? Do you have a clue what the Lord Jesus is saying? 
you do not have this peace. And it is impossible for you to find this peace, to know anything of this peace outside of God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me state it in, 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 the, in the simplest terms I possibly can. If you are not a Christian, you are merely, if you take your worldview If you take your system of thought to its logical end, you must acknowledge before all here this morning, you are nothing more than a piece of dust on a planet called Earth. The past is meaningless. And the future is absolutely meaningless. And you find yourself caught between these two poles of meaningless. No truth. No purpose, no comfort, and no peace. Peace I leave with you, says the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God through Calvary's cross. The peace of God by believing in God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. You will not find it in this world. Do I give it to you? Oh, the uniqueness of the peace of God. But there's a third section in this verse, isn't there, as we read on. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Here we arrive at the result. Or perhaps the word fruit is better. Here we arrive at the fruit of this peace. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Or as the Lord Jesus words it here, peace I leave with you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is a peace that when it takes root, because our faith is on God and on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a peace that quietens our hearts and releases us from this trouble. that releases us from this fear that plagues us. Even as Christians, we struggle with that every day, don't we? Now, we read that verse. That, that's wonderful peace. That's beautiful. But I, I, I'm, I'm an absolute mess this morning. My heart's doing somersaults as I sit here listening to this. My heart is troubled. There's a disconnect between what I'm hearing, what I say I believe, and what is actually going on in the depths of my soul. Let me suggest to you as nicely as I can this morning, there are three possible reasons for that. There are three things that will rob us of this peace. There are three things that will keep our souls in a turbulent state and keep our hearts in a perpetual state of fear if we do not mortify these things, take our eyes off of these things and fix them solely, entirely upon God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The first is this, a love of self. A love of self. And because of a love of self, We have such a distorted view of what we think will make us happy, don't we? Uh, We think all the bells and whistles will make us happy. We live in what can only be described as a materialistic society. We live in what can only be described as a consumer society. We live in an age in which we are bombarded daily by one simple message. Buy and consume the key to happiness. And how many of us as Christians fall into that precise trap? 
How many of us approach life that way of thinking, a little more or that or this, that in this life and in the things that this life has to offer and in the materialism we perceive that we can find quiet of soul and happiness, but all it does is compound the turbulence of soul. Misplaced affections always have the same result, afflictions. Misplaced affections always lead to afflictions. When you think of Solomon and the wisdom of Solomon and you think of the love of self and all that Solomon had, abundant wealth, unparalleled luxury, unchallenged power, unimaginable pleasure, unequaled wisdom. In the midst of it all, Solomon could cry, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Christian, do you get that? Do you get it? That if we fail to mortify love for self, if we fail to mortify those misplaced affections, the result will be a troubled heart. And the result will be a vague notion concerning the peace of God that we may understand and grasp cognitively, but that it continually eludes and escapes us. Because the root of the problem is a misplaced heart. I shared this on Wednesday night with, uh, with some of the men here as we were going through James. I thought it would be relevant to share it again because it, it illustrates so well this, 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 this misperception we have of what, we'll, of what we think will make us happy, of what we think will comfort us, of what we think will bring joy, of what we think will bring peace. And it comes from the pen of James Dobson. He writes, recently my family played Monopoly. Which was the first time I've played it in 15 years. Before long, a bit of the old excitement and enthusiasm came back, especially as I began to win. Everything went my way. And I became master of the board. I owned Boardwalk and Park Place. And I had houses and hotels all over the place. My family was squirming. And I was stuffing $500 bills into my pockets and under the board and under my seat. But suddenly the game was over. I had won. Shirley and the kids went to bed. And I began putting everything back into the box. Then I was struck by an awfully empty feeling. All of the excitement I had experienced earlier was unfounded. I didn't own any more than those whom I had defeated. It all had to go back into the box. The Lord showed me that there was a lesson to be learned beyond the game of Monopoly. I recognized that I was also witnessing the game of life. We struggle and accumulate and buy and own and possess and refinance. And suddenly we come to the end of life and have to put it all back into the box. We can't take a cent with us. There are no trailers that accompany us through the valley. Of the shadow of death. I remember years ago seeing a bumper sticker. Or maybe it was a license plate. It must have been a bumper sticker. The one with the most toys in the end wins. What utter and absolute foolishness. Tom foolery. No other way to describe it. The one with the most toys in the end is as dead as the one with the least number of toys in the end. It makes no difference in the life hereafter. And yet how often we have this distorted 
view, don't we? It's so difficult living in Western society. It is so difficult living in this culture where the message is always the same. Consume, 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 buy, 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 that this will be the source of happiness. It does not make us happy. It ends up making us miserable. And it robs us of the peace of God and the tranquility of soul that is only found not when our faith is placed in things, but our faith is placed in God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing that is the cause of our, cause of our struggle and our anxiety is this, a life of sense. We struggle to live in the light of eternity. We are very much glued to the here and now. We think 70 years, 80 years, 90 years is long. But in actual fact, this life is fleeting, is is nothing. We we spoke about this as well Wednesday night, didn't we, men? And I gave the example of years ago when Alison and I were in Edinburgh, Scotland. And Alison was out on the high street eating, drinking tea and eating scones or something. And I was in the the National Archives, looking up all my ancestors, go pouring through microfilm and all these baptismal records and marriage records and, and everything else, trying to get some names together. Went all the way back to the late 1700s. And all of a sudden I was overwhelmed by this, this feeling of sadness, borderline despair. So I had absolutely no clue who these men and women were. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Two generations after I die, nobody will have a clue who I am. And nobody, frankly, will care. This life is here today and it is gone tomorrow. And even as Christians, we struggle to grasp that, don't we? We struggle to measure this life in the light of eternity. And we end up putting so much value on this life, so much emphasis on this life. And when we do, our souls are troubled, deeply troubled. The calm and quiet disappears because we're evaluating everything that happens by now, right here, this moment. Rather than evaluating it in the light of eternity in God's presence. And the third factor, the third thing that troubles our souls is this, a loss of sight. We fail to understand God's ways with us. I think that's what's happening in the case of the disciples. Their hearts are troubled. They're afraid. Why? Verse 28 in John 14. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. You wouldn't be troubled. If the spiritual spectacles glasses were on, you would understand that my departure isn't really a sad thing. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to send another helper who is just like me, who will actually dwell in you. If you perceive this, if you understood it, if you weren't so spiritually obtuse and blind, you would see that my departure is actually for your good. But they couldn't see past their immediate circumstances. How often I fall into that trap. How often do you fall into that trap? So overwhelmed by what is happening. Can't see God's hand in it. Can't make heads or tails of it. Can't see any sense in it. And we lose sight. We lose perspective of the fact that God has promised not merely to give us this 
peace. But to cause all of these circumstances to ultimately work for good. But when we lose sight of the promise, when we lose sight of God's power, when we lose sight of God's knowledge, when we forget what we know to be true, oh, how our hearts begin to just well up with that anxiety and that fear and that trouble. And the only solution is the words of the Lord Jesus right at the outset, is it not, are they not, of John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Five precious promises all told as we've made our way through this chapter. The first found all the way back in verse 3. Christ promises that he's coming again. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. The second promise, verse 12, he promises to accomplish great works through us. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. The third glorious promise, verse 13, he promises to answer our prayers. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And the fourth promise, verse 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. And the fifth promise, the verse that we've meditated upon this morning, verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And what does he require of us? What does he command us to do? Believe in God. Believe also in me. Our Heavenly Father, our prayer this morning is that you would enable us to take that commandment to heart. Our prayer this morning is that you would fix our spiritual eyes upon you, your glories and excellencies. Fix our spiritual eyes upon our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. In so doing, may you give us this peace which passes all understanding. We pray it earnestly. We ask for it fervently. And we ask it from you, the one who gives abundantly. And we ask it in the name of our mighty Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.